Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Air Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and informed their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetairstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class lists, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. Today, I welcome floral artist and flower friend and mentor, Sarah Statham. Whether writing from her corner of Yorkshire, England, or gardens farther afield, she is forever seeking light and the perfect pebble, and always celebrating color, form, and seasonality. Her role as an educator extends beyond the vase, providing invaluable business advice through one-to-one conversations with numerous flower fettlers, both seasoned and new. As much as I rely on her rock-steady advice, it is her humor, love of learning, and keen sense of observation that I admire most. Perhaps it is due to the many roles she has held in her own life, but her ability to see and share stories is one of her greatest gifts. And since most of you will know her way with a bowl and a tulip or two, you'll agree there are few in the same league. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to have you on Garden People. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I was wondering if you could begin by just describing yourself and your work, how you characterize what it is you do. I run a a small business. It's called Simply by Arrangement. Not the business name I would choose if I was doing it again, but that's a different (laughs) story. Um, And I live in Yorkshire where I have a very small studio in the garden and most of my time is spent teaching other people to do flowers And some of that time is also spent doing weddings and events as well. It's a career that I came to just under 10 years ago now from a completely different world. And whilst it's something that perhaps doesn't make me a great deal of money, it makes me pretty happy. Yeah. And you grow your own flowers, correct? Or the you work you work to grow the own flowers, yeah. Not everything. Okay. Everything that we do is is ours because it's a third of an acre, so it's not a huge garden. So for weddings and events, I still have to buy in from mainly from local growers, and even on a weekly basis, I get a delivery from Rachel, who is Yorkshire Flower Patch, who lives nearby, and that helps kind of top up all the flowers I need for a workshop. Wonderful. And do you have any collaborators, people that you work with regularly for the growing or any other part of the process? Yes, apart from James, who's my husband, Jill Shaddock, who you may or may not have heard me mention in the past. Um, she is primarily a ceramicist, a really well-known, quite famous ceramicist, although she's extremely modest, so you'd never know it when you met her. But um, she loves flowers probably as much as I do. And we met about five years ago over some tulips. That's another very long story. And then during, well, just before the pandemic, Jill decided that she wanted to do a few less hours on the ceramics and more with flowers. And so she agreed to come and help me on workshops and on weddings. So we're a bit of a team now. And of course, over the last two years, she she never went to the, well, she did go to the studio, but she didn't want to go to the studio over the past two years. She's, she's been mainly out in, in our garden growing and also works for the Rachel who is the grower nearby who who supplies my flowers so she works across the two still does some ceramics but yes that's that's really the team it's quite small that's wonderful yeah it is for for how much you do that's amazing 
And so I would love to have you speak a little bit about how you did come to this work, your before life, <laughs> and then mm -hmm. how this, this was created. Okay, well, I'm going to brief on it because it's documented everywhere. And I yes. feel I said a lot. I was a criminal lawyer for 20 years. I worked, I suppose it's your equivalent of the DA's department. I was a prosecutor. That job I loved, the job that I thought would do for life, and government cutbacks made it really, really difficult. I saw quite a lot of really hard-hitting things. I dealt with very serious cases, and I suppose after 20 years of doing that, you reach a point of not exhaustion as such, but perhaps I'd fallen slightly out of love with it. And my stress relief every week was to do flowers. And so eventually when I decided to look for a way out of, of what I was doing with, with the law, flowers were the escape route, which I, I took. I took a year of sabbatical, a year of sabbatical from my, what was then my day job. I learned flowers from lots of other people. I also went on a business of flowers course in London, which is where most of the flower courses were at that time. And what I really knew was that I wanted to teach people to do flowers because it wasn't a well-known thing back then. I know it is now and you can pick up a flower course absolutely everywhere. But back then it wasn't. And so I knew that that was the, the avenue that I wanted to go down and started it on a very, very small scale. And I just developed it from there. I didn't grow at the time. I started to grow in that first year as well. That was something completely new to me. I wasn't a gardener. I am now and that was perhaps a whole new dimension that I hadn't realised was going to come along with the flowers and that's something that again I'd love to do. Yeah I think because of your story it is well documented that there are lots of people who are making this similar career change or a change into flowers even other creative avenues and they really appreciate hearing about your story and so I was wondering if there was any moment that you thought you were sort of making a mistake in changing your career or if you felt any obligation you know you had this specific training you could handle these cases that you know you should yeah had a duty to sort of continue yeah all the for probably a good couple of years I wondered whether I should be making the leap whether I should be going back to the day job because you're right it took a lot of training and a lot of hard work to get to that point as a lawyer you're programmed to do certain things aren't you and you're definitely not programmed to be creative or, <laughs> or do flowers and it, it took me ages to appreciate that a lot of the skills you have as a lawyer are actually quite easy to transfer into being florist floral designer grower you don't quite realise that some of the things that the art of negotiation, for example, actually also helps you when you're, I don't know, quoting for a wedding or speaking to growers, whatever. So there were a lot of skills that I didn't appreciate I could move into flowers. It also took me a long time to actually call myself a florist. So a good sort of couple of years where I was in limbo thinking, well, who am I? What, what exactly do I do? And, I, you know, people would say, oh, what do you do? And I'd stop myself from saying I'm a lawyer because I, I wasn't, strictly speaking, employed as a lawyer, but I would never say I was a florist. And then the day came where I would just say, yeah, I'm a florist. And that was pretty good. It's not a very well-regarded career in England. So if I walked into a shop and said, oh, I'm a lawyer, people would, their eyes would light up. But if you now say I'm a florist, it's, you know, that no one cares. It's, it's right. quite a weird, quite a weird thing to get used to. But in some ways, quite nice. It's nice to have that layer of anonymity, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. 
And you've written about visiting flower shops during your time as a prosecutor. I use the term prosecutor. (laughs) And I was wondering what made you step into flowers in the first place? Why was that a release for you? What was sort of speaking to you about them? I think it was, I, I would go to different the courts that I went to were in different towns. And so there would be one town that had an amazing flower shop that I would perhaps go to midweek if I managed to catch it before it closed. And then the town I eventually moved to also had a, a great flower shop. It probably was the shops themselves that drew me in, just the scent and the, the, the surroundings. And probably the fact that you could go into a flower shop and buy something that was, I won't say cheap, but you could, it, as a, an end of week treat, it was okay to buy a bunch of flowers. I, I don't kind of go out and drink all, and I don't even drink coffee. So that was kind of my equivalent of the five coffees a week that other people would have. And it didn't feel frivolous. It just felt nice to get those flowers in your hand and then know you'd be able to do something with them at the weekend. I'll be perfectly honest, the stuff I was doing was dreadful. Um, nothing like the flowers that you see people do now it really was bad Um, but I quickly appreciated it was just a switch off time yeah Um, yeah so now I'm curious were there any particular blooms that you think now you would never use or (laughs) yeah I mean locally grown flowers were not something that had that were on my radar I to be honest they weren't really on anyone's radar 10 years ago in in Britain and I loved, this is quite embarrassing, but I loved <laughs> red Grand Prix roses. The, you know, the ones that look like velvet. Yep. And, oh, it's so embarrassing. But they were my favourite flowers. And then, of course, I discovered sweet peas and proper flowers and dahlias. But they weren't something that were, was ever available at the shops I was going to. Yeah, yeah. You also write that flowers can transform a moment in time and that being surrounded by flowers can be life enhancing. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about those experiences in your life or what you see also in the lives of your clients. Well, I wrote that for my website. I suppose to make it sound a bit impressive. (laughs) What what I really mean is really at a very basic level, you know, flowers will transform a specific moment in your life. So your wedding or just a special occasion that's how you would use so that was I suppose my bit in my website maybe to appeal to couples who were getting married yeah. and what was the other bit that I said, <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> that you said. yeah well that that's a bit more I suppose that's a little bit more meaningful for me because I genuinely do think that for lots of people they can be life enhancing if you've come from a different background or a stressful background just to step outside in your back garden and deadhead your roses or just pick a tiny bunch of flowers from the garden. I really do think actually that's pretty special. You know, it's, it's an hour's time where you, you're in another world and then you bring them inside and they'll transform a room and bring a room to life. So yeah, I do think that for some, I'm not saying for everyone obviously, but for some people like me, they are quite life enhancing. Yeah. And at the time that you were making this transition, what made you use that time on a sabbatical exclusively on, on floristry? How did it move from becoming something that was a release and fun to something that was you're getting really serious about and might be a profession? I'd already decided that this was what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I looked at other things, but things like interior design were really interested in me. But when I met an interior designer on holiday and uh, she said that, well, this is what I really do with my day. And when she talked about all the maths that were involved and all the, the light bulbs and the positions of very, I decided that wasn't 
anything that I needed to to do (laughs) so I knew it was going to be flowers and I knew I wanted it to be teaching because I couldn't get that where I was so I knew that there was that gap in the market for it and I already did some teaching in my job anyway so I knew that that was an area that I wanted to to work with if I'm being completely honest I probably should as a younger person have been a teacher anyway and it wasn't a career that I pursued because my mum was a teacher and told me that I couldn't be a teacher. So <laughs> it's, it's perhaps a little bit of that as well. Yeah. When was sort of the moment that you first discovered British grown flowers and made the distinction like these are actually, this is what I want to be involved in? I did. I went on a class whilst I was still at work, a day class. Again, it's something I mentioned a lot because it was a, such a good class for a lady called Miss Pickering, who's a, now a good friend. She, she runs a business in Stanford, and if anyone's ever in England and wants a class to go on, look her up. She's so good. So it was at her class that I first used some British flowers and realised how absolutely beautiful they were. And it was, I hear people say this a lot, it's the scent. That was the difference for me that I hadn't experienced before. The shop bought flowers had no scent, but everything that was English did. And so I just began to a little bit more. Magazines weren't, now you open a magazine and, you know, half of the magazine is full of British cut flowers. It just wasn't then. But I could see that there was a little glimmer of an emerging trend. And actually it was my husband, James, who said, well, I don't know why you don't just grow flowers to help with your business. So it was that and he was a good gardener. So actually coming into gardening and trying to learn that was probably the reason I started then to look at more British grown flowers. And just at that time, an organisation that I'm sure you've heard about called Flowers from the Farm started up in the UK. And so I became a member of that. And then, of course, that developed and I I met lots of other people. And of course, that then becomes, I suppose, your world, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And what about growing appealed to you and appeals to you today? What was you didn't expect? Well, for anyone who's done that first year of growing on a, a brand new spot where you put in, for example, that the first thing I grew was dahlias. And to most people, they're complicated and they are. But if you follow the instructions, they're pretty bomb proof. Yeah. To see that patch of dahlias, and they're about 30 dahlias, develop from absolutely the horrible wizened up old piece of potato to something that was taller than me in the space of months was pretty profound. So it was that that got me really hooked, I think, on growing. Just, I suppose, because it is actually quite easy, isn't it? And I know, obviously, that it's not. I don't, you know, there's lots to it. But for anyone who's never done it, to have that happen before your eyes almost, and then to be able to, and to have to cut everything because it helps the plant. Yeah. (laughs) To kind of almost be be at the point where you're not going down to that flower shop every week anymore because you've got so many flowers, you don't know what to do with them. It was that. Yeah. Yeah. That's just the magic spinning from the earth kind of. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And of course that first year never happens for anyone else again, you know, so that first year is great because it's sort of plastic and and then things start to go wrong and the next year your tulips get tulip fire and, and all of that. But you still keep going, don't you? Because you, yeah. the season works and you know what to grow. And, and then you start to look at developing the things in the garden and making the garden look better and more landscaping in the garden. And, and then that becomes another little avenue to go off and, and explore. So there's, there's so many places then that, that plants and flowers and gardens can take you. 
Yeah. And then you start saying, well, I could go and look at gardens in, you know, so in England and Scotland, I, so many gardens to go and look at. So you go and look at them and they think, well, where, where abroad can I go to? So it's just a whole world that yeah. I didn't really, of course I knew it existed, but it was, just didn't interest me during those 20 years that I was stuck in a courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. It's even as hearing you describe it, I see the the map of my own mind, kind of how it, you know, it, yeah, it always gives you something to do and learn about. And it's such a giving process. And when you were younger, did you have any gardens in your life? Were you uh, played in gardens or have any favorite flowers? Well, I know it sounds romantic to be able to say yes. And I was brought up on a farm. And so we did have a veg patch and I was taught how to grow carrots and veg. And my grandparents, weirdly were extremely good gardeners and when they retired from the farm that we lived on they became market gardeners in a place called Southport which is quite well known for growing vegetables but the answer is no I wasn't good at gardening I wasn't interested in it I was really interested in all of the animals that were on the farm and I wanted to be a vet and I was obsessed with hand feeding calves so I wasn't at all interested in gardens as a child yeah, but still very nurturing activity, hand feeding cats. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have a, a, a creative outlet that you think of as a young person that you connect in any way to your flowers? Well, I was a musician. So that was the, the thing that took up all of my time as a child. And I don't think that connects with flowers at all. I really, I, I've tried to think of how it can, but it, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some sort of brain, you know, synapse thing there. <laughs> I don't, I genuinely don't think that people always have that story, don't they, about how someone taught them as a child to grow. And the only thing I can think of is that and one of my mum's friends when I was 16 bought me um, a bunch of carnations and I, I had them at the side of my bed and stared at them every night and, that's the first memory really I've got of, of loving flowers, but it's not what you want me to say, is it? It's not, <laughs> it's not the best story at all. <laughs> no, I think it's a wonderful story because it shows that heavy garden life that you started when you were three, you know, before you speaking in full sentences or something, I guess it'd be two, but um, that you can still find that spark later. I think a lot of people are mm-hmm. finding that. So I think, yeah, all stories are wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could describe a little bit just your garden and the growing space, how much space you have and beds. So it is a third of an acre. The whole front garden is dedicated to cut flowers. So there are raised cut flower beds and then there's a great big patch that's tulips and dahlias. So pretty much if if someone came and did a class, you could send them off into the front garden and say, cut anything you like in the front garden. You'll not upset anyone. But then the side, which is actually bigger, it kind of goes to the side of the house and then there's a field at the back. That's more kind of big, big borders. And there's a there's a border that's really gorgeous in spring. And then there's one that's in autumn for grasses. There's, very, there's actual grass in terms of mown green grass is getting less and less which is great and there's hardly any but there are lots of perennials there always have been because we live near a really great nursery called Dove Cottage and that's the kind of ideal thing to do at weekend is to go and see Kim and Stephen at Dove Cottage and see what they've, they've got there and then all these plants come back and they love because they're grown already in Yorkshire anything you buy from that nursery does really well in, in your garden yeah so it's packed full of all kinds and it's great to experiment because all the perennials that 
most people wouldn't think of as using as cut flowers you can just go and snip and try and they really work well so it's great for if people come on a class and I'll say oh have you ever thought about trying this they try it and think oh wow that's that's a useful one so yeah it's, it's a good place to experiment with with new plants and so those flowers and those patches do you find that you are using those as kind of the main flowers because you're really making those selections and then the flowers that you bring in for events are, I don't want to use the term filler, but supporting those choices or is it kind of a mix? You you might find a dahlia you like and need to buy more of it, something like that. Mm. It's more that actually. And, yeah. and the good thing about working with Rachel is that a lot of what she grows is what's already in our garden. So if I do have, say I've got, three seniors help dahlias but I want a whole raft of them for a wedding she has got a huge area obviously so she can bring me huge quantities so it works quite nicely I will get focal flowers from her but also I know I'll have them with with me I suppose my garden really is useful especially on workshops for the the special things that you're not going to get anywhere else and that's what I would like to, I like to use in bridal bouquets as well. Just, just things that I know won't be available just anywhere. So we're always, and I know you're now going to say what you're growing this year that's special. Please don't ask me because I've no idea. But it's, <laughs> I can't, I can't, if you pinpoint me, I'll, I'll not come up with it. But we are always trying to grow different things that, that will just, I suppose it is about, you see, especially because of Instagram, everyone is producing similar things and because now everyone is growing everyone's growing the same things and so a lot of the time you're on a bit of a quest to try and find something a bit like um a bit like max gill and his garden with all the clematis you're just trying to find something that's slightly different that will i'm not going to set your work apart because that sounds really that's too much and i don't mean that i just mean something unusual where I could look at that and think, I know I've made that because that's from the border at the back or something. That's what I'm, I'm looking to do. Yeah, it connects it more to your work and place. Yeah, and that's the same. If, if then I go to another garden, I get very excited about the fact they've got different plants and I want to go and try and use those in, in something so that I've created something from that space. Yeah, yeah. And you often build those beds based on what you've discussed with like a wedding client is that correct yes and no because obviously I know what's going to be growing in our beds most of the time yeah and most of what's growing in our beds is represented in my photographs that are already on a website or on Instagram and so if a couple come to me and say this is our wedding it's in August and this is our colour palette I can then show them what we're going to be growing at that time. It could well be that then they show me some exquisite dress or then I think, oh gosh, right, we can actually grow this as well. Hmm. But most of the time I, I know what we, we should have. And then if something else special is in the garden, I, I'll just pick it and use it. Got it. Probably more for classes. I'll be growing or trying to grow slightly different things for classes um, than I am for, for anything else. Because I think for bridal work, people have an idea of what they want. Mm-hmm. And it tends to be, I don't want this to sound ageist, but younger couples who, a bit like I was, don't actually know a great deal about flowers at that age. You kind of, you've got to get a bit older to, to know, well, in general terms, a little bit older. 
So no, it's more really that I want to go unusual things for the people who come who say, oh gosh, I've never used that before. Can I use that? Yeah. Now you won't tell me what you're growing for the future that is new, but is there something that you, as you think about an example mm-hmm. of in the past, something that you didn't expect to be using and that suddenly works or, or has been a different addition? Yeah. This is one of those questions like, what are you doing at the weekend question, isn't it? I can never answer it because there are so many things. Of course. And with flowers, it's watching their aging process. So Mm. if you'd asked me 10 years ago, would I be using a dried bit of black oregano in a, well, well, no, would be the answer because I'd have thrown it on the compost heap. But we're always looking, and and grasses, I mean, we never would have used grasses a few years ago. and, And now everyone's using them, everyone's using dried elements. Fritillaries are probably the one area where I've gone out and spent money and got lots of different ones. And it, again, maybe each year we do it with tulips. Actually, yeah. No, yeah. Each year we'll get more historic tulips or more species tulips. Mm-hmm. So we are always trying to get extra things. Just because you get a little bit bored, don't you? We've seen yeah. the same thing every year. Yeah. Well, um, this reminds me of something you posted about recently, which involved reusing flowers and that when you're making bowls, like I'm guessing they're, they're all for yourself that you will transfer a flower, you know, across. And it just, it speaks to sort of the care. I think you show in your process always, but it's really reflective of, yeah, a great deal of care for the flower itself and also the growing process. And so I was wondering if that's, it maybe wasn't something you always did, but how that has become something that you, a practice of yours now. Yeah, it wasn't something, I always thought you had to have the fresh bunch of flowers every week and but I think as I then started to use the garden and use the foliage, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that that's not going to die. And you can use that for five weeks sometimes. And because <laughs> it is, I think it's because whatever bowl you might see on a, a Saturday is, is still my practice time. Because it's just for me, it doesn't matter that that's, whether that's fresh or five weeks old. It, yeah. It's fine for me to transfer it out of last week's bowl and... And always it will be something that I've picked in the garden that I've picked because it's absolutely gorgeous at the time and I have to have it. And so this is perhaps a bit weird, but it almost assumes some sentimental value to me. I've got this branch or I've got this beautiful fritillary and I don't want it to die. And so if it will, if I can make it last and last and last, and if it means I've got to take it out of the bowl every night and snip it and put it in a little separate bath of water. I, I will do all of that just to keep preserve the life of, of that flower. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so weird, wonderful. <laughs> no, no, no. I love that. I love that. Again, it just shows such respect for the, the growing process and the flower itself. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And that's why I photograph so much because when you make something you know you've only got it for a certain amount of time and so the photographs are the the memory and the record and and something yes you can go on to show clients but it is part of that gosh I've picked this and we've grown this and I know what care has gone into growing it and I don't really want to let it go yeah no I think anyone who even you know without again a need to share anything more widely I think so many of us take pictures of flowers just to sort of have that memory, you know, that the ranunculus that as it's kind of opening and the back petals are back and it has that sort of, uh, you know, that yeah. sort of globe. And you always get the back. one, the one yeah. ranunculus in the bunch that's out, out of this world gorgeous. Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, it, it's not a good picture necessarily, but it's, you need to sort of hold on to that. It's mm-hmm. like, this happened. <laughs> 
But all of that is actually why I couldn't be a grower who sells flowers on mm. because I couldn't cut them and give them to someone else. I get quite attached to them. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't know how growers do it. I really don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you mentioned the bowls you have, you know, I just think your, your instruments are so exquisite, especially those bowls. And, and again, in the same post you had about the one hellebore kind of transferring from bowl to bowl, they got smaller and smaller, but I was wondering what speaks to you about bowls, why this is your preferred form. How did you kind of start using them? There's a few reasons for this. Firstly, it's because everything's in water. And I can move that bowl to the right place in the right room so it's going to last longer. So it is about making the flowers last as long as I can. And secondly, it's because I've got a slight obsession with bowls. You might have noticed that I really do like bowls. And so if a new bowl appears, I get a bit excited about it and, and I need to use it a lot. And then I've got other favourite bowls where if I'm having a bad week, if I use that bowl on a Saturday afternoon, I feel a lot better. Yeah. So, and also I think that if you've got, and this is a bit, I read a lot of Constance Spry when I started and I yeah. think it maybe comes from her because she would find the right flowers for the right vessel. Now yeah. I can't remember whether she, which she did first and she might be like me. She might've done a bit of both. You sometimes find the right flowers in the garden and then you think, oh, that vessel will work. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's the vessel that, that speaks to you first and you think, have to use that this week so let's go and find something that that fits with it yeah Um, do you know where the obsession with vessels came from with bowls in particular I think just because I realized how they could transform the flowers so if you make a bouquet that's great and yeah the great ribbon's going to make a bouquet look good but making flowers in a bowl what you've done is you've transferred bits of your garden or a garden into a bowl and you made a smaller garden and sometimes that vessel can make those flowers it's hard to believe but even more beautiful Mm -hmm. so for me it's all part of the process and a really great vessel can make your flowers look extra good yeah and again it's a little bit of everyone's doing the same thing so actually where's your point of distinction sometimes Mm -hmm. it is actually the bowl Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And these bowls that you have right now, they're being filled with the spring. And I was wondering what that sort of means to you in Yorkshire. What do you see? What's coming up? And and what are you working with? Well, you might notice the bowls get bigger as the year goes on because that reflects the abundance of the garden. Right. So at the minute we're, we're very, very Japanesey, and it's the beautiful thin-stemmed fritillaries. They're just... They're, so. First snakes had fertility came out about a week ago. And now all the other, I never know how to pronounce it, LVCI and all of the other really fancy fertilities are now trying to appear. So they're great for tiny bowls because of their delicacy. And then, of course, we end up with the tulips, which they're obviously bigger. In terms of their stems, they're quite bruiserish. So then that means you've got to get a bigger bowl. And you know, the same as we go on through the year, dahlias obviously need a bigger bowl. So, yeah, I, if you were asking me to choose, I would go for the delicate flowers. So the spring flowers, I think they're exquisite, aren't they? And they seem to move. They just, they have that movement in them, even though they're, obviously they're not. So it's probably my favourite 
time of year except that then I love autumn as well because I love the branches and the leaves and the the changing the colors of autumn are the best colors mm-hmm. but the flowers of spring just because of their delicacy I think are the best flowers and obviously yeah. it's because you've not really seen any for a while and it's, it's been a long winter <laughs> right right and it seems like you make time to create just for yourself and I was wondering mm-hmm. how you do that I've noticed a number of bowls being posted while you are on vacation <laughs> Yeah, you can pretty, you usually can tell I'm on holiday because I make more bowls. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a resting time. Well, either you can tell if I make more bowls, it's because I'm either on holiday or because I'm trying to forget what's going on in the world or, or something. Or actually just because I've got too many flowers. But that, that doesn't often happen because I'm, I'm from Yorkshire and I'm not going to pick that many flowers from my garden. So it is usually that I've got a little bit of time or I don't I'm probably, I, I do at least one a week. And if I'm being honest, probably two or three, just because I don't want to waste anything. And so if, if there is a little bit of something left over, I find I've got to do something with it. Mm-hmm. And it might go to the, the lady next door or so, somewhere else, but I, I can't really see anything just sitting in my workshop and dying. That really doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And do you carve that out, that time out, even in your busy wedding season? Is it a necessary part of your process? Well, yes, it is, because there needs to be a bit of practice to get the the combination of flowers right for a wedding. I don't do great big spreadsheets and because I'm working with locally grown flowers, I've got to work in a way that I'll work with whatever comes in. Mm-hmm. And obviously, yeah, it's chosen. I've, I've ordered it and it's chosen on a colour palette. But then once it comes in, I need to check that it, it is going to sit right in the scheme that I imagine. Right. So there's a little bit of practice going on there, which is great because then someone else can, if I've got help, they can replicate what I've made. And obviously on a wedding, you're not really you've got no downtime. So that there is a practice maybe on the, you know, the Tuesday and then everything's nose to the grindstone. But then there's the Sunday when you've, you've broken down the wedding, you've come back. And of course, there's all these leftovers. And yeah. if you brought back the flower, which we do here, well, I certainly do. I go and break down my weddings and I've got a car full of flowers. And so 20 bowls or urns will come out of the back of my car. Half of the stuff in them will be dead. Half of it will still be great. Yeah. <laughs> so then I've got this awful period of, gosh, I've got to do something with that because I cannot see it go to. So when you hear people talk about the Yorkshire mentality of waste, not, want not, that's what it is. I cannot see waste. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. So even and if I'm going to sit up till midnight, do yeah. something, I will do it rather than see it go to waste. Yeah, yeah. I think that's wonderful. Again, I mean, so much has gone into these flowers. It's it's wonderful to yeah. keep making with them and sharing. That's mm. wonderful. And is there a time that you take any breaks from creating? Do you have a, a down season? I guess forced perhaps in the winter, but. <laughs> I think I had nearly a week at the beginning of this year where I didn't do flowers and it really was because there were all I'd got was the dried flowers that were left and I, there were only so many times I could read it before they turned <laughs> into them um, yeah. so but no I don't have time off because everything's always growing isn't it and mm-hmm. so that means there's always something out there that you've got to use because if you don't use it then it's gone yeah so again so no, and then if I go away somewhere to a different place, well, gosh, that's amazing because there's there's a whole new garden out there. Right. And again, this is going to sound odd, but <laughs> if we go on holiday and say it's to a little house and it's got a garden, 
and say you arrive at midnight, the first thing I'll do is try and have a little look around the garden and see what. <laughs> and the first thing I'll do in the morning after is, oh, what's out there that I could use? Yeah. So, yeah. That's wonderful. This is very compulsive, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> You might need help. You know, it's so beautiful. I no questions asked. (laughs) Well, you mentioned, I don't want to say the escape necessarily of flowers, but yeah, that it's a can take your focus off of some of the things that we, yeah, we all need to break from. But I've also noticed how much of a leader you have been on so many important issues in the industry and the flower community, especially recently clustering sort of resources and attention for the crisis in Ukraine. And so I was wondering if, I don't know if you have any reflections on that role and whether you took it consciously. I, I know you're incredibly humble. I don't know. I wouldn't presume that you would say, I'm, you know, I'm going to take this leadership role, but I also think you're sort of a defender of people. And so, yeah, I was just curious to know how you kind of fit that in. Cause it really is, I mean, not to say you speak and everyone else does, but I think you really are an incredible guide and one that's really necessary. Well, I'm definitely not a leader. Um, But what happens in the background is I get asked a lot of questions and then I'll go away and think about it. And if I'm getting asked the same question all the time, I can see that there's something bothering a lot of people. And with with specific reference to, to Ukraine, obviously everyone, I mean, it's hard to put into words what that's meant, especially to people in Europe. It's so close to home and we've yeah. all studied it in history. And yeah. we're all thinking, is this World War Three? Yeah. And so everyone I was speaking to was utterly horrified and, and you feel like that for two days. And then you kind of process it and think, well, I can't, what can I do? I cannot sit here and do nothing. And in our town, we've had something a bit similar and it's the same feeling that you get. We get flooded quite a lot. Mm-hmm. and a lot of the shops and businesses get flooded and it's heartbreaking to watch and then you feel guilty if you're not one of the people flooded and everyone goes into town to try and help clear up and that's great because that's needed but actually then it comes back to in the next couple of days always comes back to money mm-hmm. because everyone needs the money to get them going again yeah. and the war I I reflected on it for a couple of days and I thought God, these are the same feelings that that I had with the floods so what does it come back to and then I looked at what was going on I could see obviously the humanitarian crisis and that the one thing you know you can do straight away is is help with money and I I am not saying that that is the solution at all but it's something that you can do in a small way a big way however you want it yeah and of course my donation to that cause was going to be very very limited personally but then I began to think, well, what have I got? And actually, I was, I was sending a card to a friend who, it was her birthday. And I opened up this box and it had some of my prints in and there were sunflowers. And I, it's, I never consciously think about it. Stuff kind of comes to me. And yeah. I don't know why. So they kind of jumped out at me and thought, oh, my God, I've got all these prints and I was going to put them on the website. But actually, that's a physical thing that I've got that I can sell. So yeah. that was the start point. I mulled it over because I wasn't sure about it and I wasn't sure is this the right thing to do because does it make other people feel guilty if they can't contribute? So it was a really hard one to, to get to grips with. And in the end, I thought, well, not sure I really care what everyone else thinks or what they do. This is needed. So this is what I'm going to do. And that was the process, really. And it, I think it was pure coincidence that maybe you saw my one of my posts first, that there were lots of people doing mm-hmm. exactly the same thing. 
And there are so many people in the flower industry who are doing really great stuff. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be huge. And so I know now that lots of other bigger flowers from the farm are going to do something. So it's great that everyone then kind of looks and thinks, all right, it's okay. It's okay to do this. Because I think it's more that a lot of the time people need a bit of permission to do something, don't they? Yeah. And we're all, because of social media, we're all scared to death of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And I'm in no way a leader, but quite often I just think, well, what's the sensible thing to do? And that's all it comes down to, really. Yeah. Well, thank you for being sensible. I think it, again, it it gives people permission and, and again, shows them a way forward when it might be. I think the recommendation often is don't be political or, you know, and so you Mm. sort of are trying to navigate, Mm. you know, how to share that in a world where it doesn't belong. And I think, yeah, yeah. There's no, I mean, you, you can't, you cannot separate. Well, I don't believe at the minute you can separate what's going on or how people are feeling from your Instagram account. I know some, some big businesses can, and, and that's great, but I couldn't. So it all, for me, it just always comes down to, well, what do you think is right? Right. Well, and certainly with the climate crisis, I think it's undeniable that, you know, you're speaking about floods. There, anything that, mm. that we're experiencing, especially in the world of plants, is directly impacted by climate change, which is also in many ways linked to some of the underlying reasons and, and issues that are in this, you know, very political crisis. Yeah. And something that else that I think is, what is it, bubbling up for probably small business owners everywhere, but certainly in this industry is, I want to say, how to avoid overwhelm or burnout, especially in the creative process. And I was wondering if you have any recommendations, do you take any particular step? Although you are up at midnight redoing a bunch of (laughs) 20 urns, so I don't know. (laughs) I just go out into the garden or someone else's garden and pick some flowers. And actually, I'm being serious about that. I That is how I would deal with, and it obviously only works for me, it doesn't work for everyone, but that is how I would deal with a crisis or feeling bad. Um, I would just go in and maybe take myself off to someone else's garden. It's great because that's a different place. But yeah, being in a garden for me is the thing that helps. So uh, don't really think burnout is going to be an issue. Yeah. <laughs> not, not- <laughs> Not from this job anyway, but right. <laughs> obviously other things in life, yes, but not from this job. Yeah. And where do you take inspiration from? Is there any anything or anyone that influences your work or particular gardens, books, bowls, Gosh, I suppose? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that it's everywhere, isn't it? I do, and you'll probably see me go on about it quite a lot. I do, I do like light. So light will affect. So I will go to places where I know it. So I did once go to California and thought the light there was amazing. But the lights, for example, in Scotland is different. I'm told it's not. My husband says it's the same light everywhere, but it really is different. So oh, yeah. that I do find that helps because then I'll think, oh, I can take I can take better photographs here because the light is different. Or if I went to a different house, again, a bit like a garden, I would go around that house and think, oh, which window has got the best light? I can I can go and take a photograph. So for me, that maybe it is photography that that gives me some inspiration gardens yes absolutely many many gardens and again there's there's one I always come back to and it's Cambo Garden and that's got the perfect combination of it's a great garden it's also near the sea and it's got the light so that is magical and actually that's the place I would go if I was experiencing severe burnout ever (laughs) yeah but then yeah other gardens and things like 
art obviously influenced you if somebody gave me a new vessel that would influence me and there's so many different things and obviously that just the fact that you're working in a garden all the time anyway and the fact that different flowers are appearing each week each of those flowers are going to influence you for that week and so it's just a real privilege isn't it that things change all the time so you're constantly getting these different influences and different things to to inspire you every yeah. week really Absolutely. Do you have any favorite garden writers that you recommend anyone should read? Well, yes. Have you read anything by Beth Chatter? Yeah, of course you have. But yeah, she's probably my favorite. Christopher Lloyd, absolutely brilliant. Sue Stewart Smith's book, everyone will mention, which is again, really good. But Christopher Lloyd and Beth Chatter probably would be up there as my favorites. Mm -hmm. Um, I do love Anna Prevord's The Tulip. That's a great book. Well, you have a wonderful, a wonderful writing voice. I was wondering if you have any favorite writers that are not garden writers. Oh, gosh. Again, you see, you put me on the spot. <laughs> favorite flower. Ooh. Oh, gosh. Is Ian McEwan. Oh, Probably sure. the best writer ever. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And it seems like you are a collector of bowls, certainly. But I also noticed that you are a collector of pebbles. And so I was wondering, where, <laughs> where did this start and what is the perfect specimen? what are you looking for yeah I don't know where it started I just like to again it's a bit I like to bring things back it must be that sentimental thing um mm-hmm. I'll just you know if I've been to a particular place and I see so I'll, I'll put it in my pocket everyone does that um I don't actually have that many pebbles they've got to be the certain special one with the little stripes on that fit in the palm of your hand and I'm still looking for the pink one so if anyone wants to send me a pink pebble with two stripes that fits in the palm of your hands that'd be great okay wonderful <laughs> we're sending that out <laughs> I, bet, I bet you've got them I bet you've got them there I was about to say I actually have some pretty strong <laughs> contenders that we may need to bring you? you back yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy I'll send you some photos <laughs> you can you can size them up I'll give you a hand Ooh, cool. a hand measure <laughs> <laughs> And so the question that I ask everyone is based on your experiences in either growing, arranging in this flower world, what do you think are the barriers to entering gardening work? How do you think we can bring more people into the garden? Well, again, it comes back to money, doesn't it? The big barrier is that gardening, floristry, it is not a well-prepared job. And so, again, I shouldn't generalize, but I'll tell you about, I'll do it from my perspective. I can only do this because I had a job as a lawyer that allowed me to get a house and pay the bills. If I'd started out as a florist, I probably wouldn't have been able to get on the property ladder in England at the minute. And when you look at the amount of hours that florists, gardeners put into to their jobs, that's really not right. Yeah. Um, so it, it makes for a profession that's either full of career change people and I count myself in that and I feel terrible about it but that's the reason I can do this or people who maybe are from wealthier backgrounds and that's where the change needs to happen yeah yeah in the UK or anywhere else that you think areas or organizations are achieving this or making that a little bit easier well again I don't want to run the risk of missing something really important out so I'm going to speak from my own small perspective yeah yeah best Um, (laughs) I help out an organisation called the Business of Selling Flowers. And it's founded by three women growers, 
none of whom come from rich professional backgrounds. So all absolute grafters who are brilliant at what they do. And they now run courses, online courses to help new growers. And through that as well, they now offer scholarships. And so mm-hmm. I help help a little bit with them with their scholarships. So that's the one organisation I can speak of. I know there are lots and lots of others now, which is, it's much needed. And it's perhaps, it's not too late, obviously, but it, thankfully it's coming through now. And again, I, I don't know though whether it comes down to public perception as well. People don't see gardening or floristry as, as a decent job. Yeah. And so they don't see it as um, a career to get. So it it perhaps also comes down to education, kind of grassroots level education would be the one way that you could change everyone's perceptions, get people interested at a a young age. So maybe it comes down to that should be on the, the school curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm impressed though. And I don't know if this is just the algorithm or the filter that I'm seeing things through, but it seems like in the UK, there are lots of young people who are interested in garden work. Again, maybe the question is, can they go from supporting a farm and working on a farm to have working with a florist to doing their own work later is perhaps the, that jump is facilitated by, as you say, either, you know, having another job or having those funds. It probably is that you are viewing things through a certain lens. Yeah. I know I do it as well, because obviously that's more of the stuff that you're interested in. I think in England, UK as a whole, it's still a very small proportion of people Mm -hmm. and a a small proportion of younger people as well. So yeah, there's still a lot of change needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so, so much, Sarah. It is really such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for listening. Garden People is produced with generous support from our sponsor, Plant Gem. Plant Gem sells unique plants you won't find anywhere else for a garden that reflects your personal style. Find them at www.plantgem.com. As always, thank you for supporting the companies that support this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left a review as it helps other garden people find us. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, Sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com.